listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody, to Season 5 of Ohio v. The World. Again, we're focusing on Ohio and the presidency this year, and this is Episode 4, Ohio versus the Campaign. Today, we'll be focusing on four presidents and their campaigns, presidential campaigns here in Ohio, uh, and three of them are some really heavy hitters, top five in almost all the rankings. You have President Lincoln. We'll talk also about Teddy Roosevelt and his fifth cousin, Franklin D. Roosevelt. We'll also focus on... President Obama, his campaigns, winning campaigns in 2008 and 2012 here in Ohio. We'll sit down with good friend and special assistant to President Obama, Mike O'Neill, uh, later in the show, talk about his role in those Ohio campaigns and his time serving in the White House. Uh, and some non-show news, you might have seen us in the newspapers over the last couple of weeks. My brother's law firm, myself, and a friend of ours, attorney Mark Andrzejczyk in Cleveland, we filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of Mayor Ginther's curfew here in Columbus uh, and played a role in getting that curfew uh, rescinded. So, you know, democracy is something that you have to keep working at. Um, and we were glad to play our small part in this, uh, in this movement that we see across the country and really across the world. An indefinite and very overbroad curfew is set in. Again, proud to, to do anything to help uh, the people's voice be heard. And I hope that this uh, movement to end racism and to address police brutality, uh, we hope that finally there is some meaningful change on those subjects. It's a historic moment we're living through, and, and it's something that we'll address again uh, at the end of today's episode. Um, also, we ask you to rate and review the show. Uh, on iTunes, you can scroll up, just do any kind of review. If you don't like the show, I want you to review that too. But we'll read you know, a few reviews here on the air. We got one uh, earlier this year from Father Dave Helm. Uh, it says, hey, Alex and the team at Ohio Be the World. I'm living from uh, listening from San Diego, Chile. I love this podcast so much. I grew up in Northwest Ohio, worked in Columbus for five years before entering the priesthood. Now I'm a principal at a Catholic school in Chile. Where, thanks to my bias, our kids also learn about the great state of Ohio, USA. I love driving around the Chilean countryside, listening about John Glenn, General Sherman, and your great recent episode on Jerry Mock. It's wild hearing about Ohio while living so far away. I love it. You guys are awesome. Thanks. Thank you, Father Gracias, uh, and keep up the good work down there in Santiago, Chile. And again, rate and review the show, and we will read those reviews on the air. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about presidential campaigns in Ohio. Ohio is a bellwether state, and although they did vote very much in favor of President Trump against the national average in 2016, they've correctly picked the president in something like 27 of the last 29 elections. Ever since 1896, uh, they've only been wrong two times, in 1944 and in 1960, uh, a very narrow election in 1960. But we'll look at these great moments in Ohio. Every presidential campaign comes to Ohio. You have to win Ohio. Republicans never won the White House without it. 
And like I said, we'll talk about Lincoln, the Roosevelts, and Obama, and some other campaign moments here today. It's going to be a very different presidential campaign season here in 2020, uh, but it doesn't mean Ohio will be spared from the numerous commercials. Um, and, you know, there's still going to be all kinds of events and debates and conventions, although they might look a little different. It is a campaign season. So put on your political button, put on your candidate's t-shirt, and get ready for the stump speech. It's episode four, Ohio vs. the Campaign. The first president to visit Ohio was James Monroe, elected in 1816. In the summer of 1817, he traveled through Ohio. Him and his group took a tour of the West, started, kicked off what was known as the Era of Good Feelings. Monroe, and I, and I read from a writing in 1858, in the latter part of August 1817, President Monroe and his suite passed through this country on their return from Detroit after his northern tour of inspection of public fortifications. They were met at Worthington by the Franklin Dragoons, commanded by Captain Vance, and then escorted to Columbus. There were speeches made, uh, and he basically complimented what he called the infant city on its quick rise and certainly promising future of Columbus, Ohio. In 1817, our first visit. When you look ahead in the next episode, we'll talk in 1840 about the campaign of William Henry Harrison and how there were so many firsts in that campaign. We don't want to give it away. Uh, but the campaign of 1840 focused almost entirely of famous campaign moments in Ohio that would end up being the model for so many campaigns to follow. Few elections were more important in this country than the election of 1860. As I said, we'll talk about Lincoln, the Roosevelts, and Obama today. We're going to do it chronologically. We start with the election of President Abraham Lincoln of Springfield, Illinois. I I gave a speech at the uh, Ohio State House for the State House uh, Museum Volunteers, their annual banquet a couple years ago, and I sat with a gentleman named Chris Matheny. And we got to chatting. Chris is the historic site manager at the Ohio State House. They have an amazing museum we'll talk about uh, at the end of the episode. Um, and just such a cool place to go is actually where me and Miss Ohio V. The World were married at the Ohio State House uh, in the rotunda and had our reception there in the atrium. Uh, but we sat down with Chris to talk about the, the visits to Columbus by President Lincoln. He makes a visit in, in 1859, three separate visits that he makes as a candidate, as the president-elect, and then as our late president. But we talk with Chris about his first visit to the Ohio State House in 1859, the fall of 1859, a year before his election, and how he would make a speech at the State House. We asked Chris Matheny, the site manager at the Ohio State House, was it a campaign speech in 1859 as Lincoln prepared to run for president? Was it a pseudo-campaign speech? You know, the best answer for that is, it's a definite maybe, <laughs> because um, there's so many things tied up with, with Lincoln and Ohio, and, and you're right. That was on September 16th, 1859, and when he came to that particular visit, he spoke from the east side of the, of the state house. It's the side we don't really get to see from the street anymore because you've got the, the Senate building there now and the, the atrium in between, but um, he stood on those steps out there and spoke to about 100, and and when he was there, he was speaking in support of William Dennison, who was the Republican candidate for governor um, in Ohio that year. 
one of the first things that comes to mind is that Stephen Douglas followed Lincoln around through Ohio. And, you know, this is coming right after the Lincoln-Douglas debate. When I say a definite make, was this a pseudo-campaign speech for the presidential election that was coming up? Probably. But I also wonder sometimes maybe it was kind of putting a cap on those old debates. And in those days, Lincoln was just trying to get Douglas to debate with him. And then he followed Douglas, in this case, around and made speeches until Douglas had to finally um, debate Lincoln. So at this point, as we're getting closer to the presidential election of 1860, it's more like Douglas is now following Lincoln. Everything has turned at this point, um, and uh, favor is, is being shown towards Lincoln. So, yeah, political speech. He would have been giving his more of his famous, a house divided against itself cannot stand kind of speech. Lincoln was definitely a union man. He spoke along those lines. Lincoln did win election in 1860, as we all know. This country, slowly, or states slowly began seceding from the union in 1860 and, and into 1861. On his way to Washington from Illinois, the president again stopped at the Ohio State House. He would make a speech to the General Assembly at a very critical moment in our country's history. He also received some very important news, the official word that he had been elected president of the United States of America. He found that out in the Ohio State House in downtown Columbus. February 13, 1861, this was his second visit. He was on his um, presidential journey to Washington, where he would be ultimately sworn in. Lincoln did actually stop at Columbus at the State House on his way there. He didn't do that at a, at a number of cities that he passed by. So strong was the connection, I think, with Lincoln in Ohio that he decided to stop. He is officially greeted by Governor Dennison, you know, the legislature, and reportedly over 5,000 citizens who had turned out for the occasion. President-elect spoke in the House chamber to a joint session. You know, you had both the Senate and the House members of the legislature. And then at half past eight o'clock that same night, a monster levy was held at the Capitol where the president-elect met many of our citizens. And was just before he spoke, Abraham Lincoln was sitting in the governor's office across the desk from Governor Dennison when he received a telegram confirming this telegram came from the Electoral College that he was indeed the president-elect. So he was at the Ohio State House when he received word of this. But I found an, uh, another article, and I believe it was in the New York Times, that said that just before he spoke in the House chamber, he received this telegram confirming, again, that he was indeed the president-elect, and that he shared some of that information with the people that were in the House chambers. And when word of it spread through the chamber, where he was about to speak, uh, you know, the pleas, uh, countenances, the smiles, and, and the approbation for, uh, for Lincoln. That's our guest, Chris Matheny, the historic site manager at the Ohio State House, would tell us Lincoln made one final trip to Ohio, a trip he never wanted to make, when in eight, April of 1865, Lincoln's funeral train stopped here in Columbus, Ohio. It's an event that Chris helps put on every year to commemorate his life, uh, and they do it every year at the State House and put Lincoln's body in repose as it was in 1865. Our 16th president, President Lincoln, was assassinated on April 14th. His body was put in a coffin, and they held a funeral in the East Room of the White House. 
casket was loaded onto what has become known as the Lincoln Funeral Train. And I want to say that that train pulled out of Washington on April 21st. On April 29th, the funeral train made a stop in Columbus. A casket was brought into the center of the rotunda in the Ohio State House, and his body lay in repose for eight hours on April 29th, 1865. And it's estimated about 50,000 turned out to see the president's body and to pay their respects um, here in Columbus. An account from Brigadier General John C. Caldwell, who uh, was appointed to this guard of honor to accompany the remains again all the way from Washington to Springfield. And he had uh, one particular thing to say. The countless thousands who passed the body as it lay uncovered at each of the cities where we stopped stirred the dust so that each night the body had to be washed of a quarter inch of dust that lay upon the face. We carried two embalmers and undertakers with us to prepare for the body. One of people's favorite presidents is Theodore Roosevelt. We talked about him during our McKinley episode earlier this season, but it's just so much fun to read about him. I'm reading again Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, The Bully Pulpit, which I can't suggest enough uh, about President Taft and President Roosevelt and their relationship. But their relationship becomes strained. And in 1912, President Taft is, is planning on running for re-election as a Republican. Roosevelt had left office in 1908, had picked Taft as his appointed successor, and Taft had won. We'll do an episode later in the season on, on William Howard Taft. We talked with our guest today, Jim Robinall, probably, gosh, our third time, I think, at least on the show, author, historian, attorney from Cleveland, Ohio, one of our favorite Ohioans. Go back and find our episode, Ohio vs. Black Power, from season three, about Carl Stokes in 1968 in Cleveland. Plenty of historical relevance to today's issues in that episode. Our guest, Jim Robinall, uh, joined us to talk about Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 where he would announce his infamous run against President Taft in the Republican primary. This is really the first time there were presidential primaries in, in a number of states. But Teddy comes to, to Ohio in February of 1912. There's rumors that he might run. Taft is worried that he will. Will it split the party? Will he take the nomination from a somewhat popular sitting president? We asked Jim Robinall, why did Theodore Roosevelt want to run for president again against what was considered to be his best friend? Theodore Roosevelt decided to run in 1912 because he was Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, he had been uh, president. He, he really stepped aside. He didn't have to step aside. There was no, you know, there was a tradition that people would not run for more than uh, two terms, starting with Washington. And, you know, he had, actually hadn't done a full two terms because he, you know, McKinley was assassinated. And he came yes, in a seven and a half years, maybe. Yeah, so he kind of walked away artificially in some ways. And he was this guy who knew he was beloved and knew he had this, you know, these great leadership skills. And he just was floundering once he left the presidency. You know, he went and killed as many animals as he possibly could and then went to Europe to the heads of state. I mean, he just, he, he could not walk away from the presidency. So in 1912, he had to, he had to really make up stuff to go after Taft uh, to, get, to get that job. And one of the main things he attacked him on was kind of his trust busting with Standard Oil. And he thought Taft had gone overboard with it. Uh, he also kind of attacked him on environmental grounds, yeah. um, 
So, but none of it was of any great significance or importance. It was really just Teddy Roosevelt being Teddy Roosevelt. He was, he just needed that office. He felt he belonged there. And so he kind of re relentlessly attacked Taft, who was a nice man and was just befuddled by all this. You know, when Roosevelt dies, you know, he just sobs at his gravesite. They just, he just did not understand why he turned on him. February 21st, 1912, then-private citizen Theodore Roosevelt travels to Columbus, Ohio to give a speech at the State House. The legislature is here debating a constitutional convention for 1912, with an era of progressives and conservative Republicans battling it out on the Ohio convention, uh, Constitution Convention floor. And Roosevelt arrives and gives a very famous speech called the Charter of Democracy. He gives it at the State House. And just read some quotes. I mean, there's still things that we are talking about and progressives are talking about today. We progressives believe that the people have the right, the power, and the duty to protect themselves and their own welfare, that human rights are supreme over all other rights, that wealth should be the servant, not the master of the people. We are engaged in one of the great battles of the age-long contest waged against privilege on behalf of the common welfare. We talk with Jim Robinald about this pure democracy these radical ideas that Roosevelt was in his progressive movement were championing uh, when he comes to Columbus in February. And we'll also play you a clip from Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt uh, comes to Ohio because Ohio is doing its, uh, redoing its constitution. And Ohio is um, back then, you know, just a powerhouse in any presidential election uh, and remains so until recently when now I'm not sure it is anymore. But for the longest time, you know, as Ohio went, so went the, the nation. But it was all part of this real big progressive movement where people were trying to get away from bosses. The, the slogan was, let the people rule. So they, you know, instead of having the United States senators picked by the legislature, have them elected directly by the people. That's the 17th Amendment. And all of those reforms were to try and make democracy a little more responsive to people and get the middleman out of it, you know, the bosses and and that sort of thing, which in some ways is right, in some ways is wrong. You can have too much democracy. Roosevelt was proposing things like, if you didn't like the way a judge ruled in a case or a Supreme Court ruled, judges to be subject to recall like regular politicians. That was a real fundamental philosophical break between Taft and Roosevelt. Taft very much believed in the judiciary and the only reason it had great power and great authority was its independence. Um, especially the federal judiciary where people are appointed for life, and that that's important in our structure. You know, we, we need to have elected representatives. We also need a judiciary that tries to stay above politics. Roosevelt was trying to put it right back into politics. So, yeah. so today, for example, if he had had his way, Roe v. Wade would have been subject to a referendum or gay marriage or any of those things. Some people would see that as a good thing, others not. That's great fundamental issue now before our people can be taken It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. Days later, Roosevelt travels from Columbus to Cleveland. And it's there is the moment we're really focusing on where he declares his uh, candidacy for the Republican nomination. Even though the Republicans have a sitting president, his former best friend from Cincinnati, Ohio, William Howard Taft, 
Roosevelt declares, and he says, and I quote, My hat is in the ring. The fight is on, and I'm stripped to the waist. Classic Roosevelt, in his language, he loved wrestling and fighting and boxing. Um, and again, if you have not read about Roosevelt, look at the, the Edmund Morris trilogy. Uh, again, The Bully Pulpit by Doris Kearns Goodwin, one of our most fascinating presidents. We talked to Jim Robinault about his de- declaration of Roosevelt entering the race of 1912 in Cleveland, Ohio. He actually goes to the train station and gives this uh, very funny talk that he's stripped to the waist and, you know, he's his hat's in the ring and, you know, he's just, it's like it's going to be a brawl, you know, and that's that's Teddy Roosevelt. You know, he couldn't do it by just saying, I want to run for president for this. It's got to be, he's going to be in there manhandling and fighting people, you know, stripped to the waist as if he were in a boxing ring. As we said earlier, it was actually the first year that there were primaries in the major parties. And we conclude talking and we'll revisit this later in the season when we talk about the historic election of 1912 with Taft, Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Eugene Debs. It was the subject of a episode of Race to the White House uh, on CNN this year. Go find that episode. Really good job by, by CNN. Um, but we talked to him just about the primary results. Now Roosevelt, who's just so popular, ends up smoking Taft, even here in Ohio. Roosevelt was very popular and Taft was not. So at the end of the day, um, Roosevelt really uh, beats up on Taft, even in Ohio, and, and wins. Uh, and, and that splits the party right down the middle so that um, the um, uh, Wilson ends up taking the, the, whole, the whole thing. But that's, that's the real break that allows Wilson to become president. Roosevelt would still end up losing the nomination despite winning the vast majority of those primaries. Uh, but he would enter the race as a third party in the Bull Moose Party, the Progressive Party, uh, which he would bolt him and his delegates would bolt from the Republican convention in Chicago and set up this three and really four way with Eugene Debs four way race for president in 1912. We'll talk about that in a later episode and we'll also have Jim Robinall back later this season. Teddy Roosevelt to Franklin D. Roosevelt. His fifth cousin uh, runs for president in 1932 as a Democrat, and the country is in the absolute worst stage of the Depression. There's a lot of similarities to this election. Maybe not as dynamic a candidate on the Democratic side this year, uh, but it is a country that is voting during what could be a serious economic downturn. Uh, But in 1932, Roosevelt runs against the sitting Republican president, Herbert Hoover, and he's not very popular. And we talked today with Kyle Conduct, the author of The Bellwether. Uh, again, Kyle's going to be on the show. He knows so much about Ohio and, and the presidency. Uh, his book, The Bellwether from 2016, Why Ohio Picks the President, uh, really required reading for our listeners. Go find that book on, on Amazon and buy that. Uh, but we talked with Kyle today about the 1932 race. We'll play a clip of Roosevelt. He visits Columbus. This speech is actually from a couple weeks before, but he goes to what we would know here in town as Cooper Stadium, the old home on the near west side of the Columbus Clippers. A brand new stadium in 1932 welcomes Franklin Roosevelt. We talked to Kyle uh, about Roosevelt's narrow win in Ohio. Um, 
even though he would really, it's a landslide win over the unpopular Hoover uh, as people are looking for a change of any kind. And they latch on to Franklin Roosevelt and his New Deal. Millions of our citizens cherish the hope that their old standards of living and of thought have not gone forever. Those millions cannot and shall not hope in vain. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order of competence and of courage. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. Ohio was one of the closest states in 1932, and it's actually a year where Ohio very notably did not vote very close to the national average. Um, It would not vote so far from the national average in any election um, until 2016, actually, when when Donald Trump won the state by eight uh, while losing the national popular vote by by two. But um, Ohio was very close, and the, the voting patterns really looked more like what had come before in that you still had that that civil war pattern in that a lot of Roosevelt's best counties were kind of uh, traditionally Democratic counties in rural parts of the state. So he swept Northwest Ohio, won a number of other places that had historically voted for Democrats, including uh, Holmes County, Amish country. Uh, uh, Roosevelt only barely won Cuyahoga County, and he actually lost uh, Mahoning County, which is where Youngstown is. You'd have to wait four years for the Roosevelt Revolution really to to hit in earnest. But this is really the time where you start to see the emergence of, I'd say, kind of modern voting patterns in Ohio, because over the course of Roosevelt's presidency, a lot of those ancestrally Democratic areas of the state start to flip toward the Republicans because they're fundamentally kind of more conservative places. And uh, the the New Deal and the build up to World War II were not particularly popular amongst uh, amongst conservative voters in general. And at the same time, you have a lot of voters in industrial areas, working class people who really identify with Franklin Roosevelt and really benefited from the New Deal's programs. And so, you know, there's a kind of old political science literature that refers to these uh, so-called critical elections. And 1896 is one of them, and 1932 is sometimes cited in which basically you have an election that, that sort of where you see fundamental change that that really lasts for a long time. And while it's true that 32, of course, is a very important election, some of the actual changes, the voting patterns don't really become totally clear in a state like Ohio and some other places really until four years later. You know, if you're, if you're looking for, um, you know, when places like not just, uh, you know, greater Cleveland, but um, Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, you know, when those places really start to become very heavily democratic, um, this 1932-1936 time period is a good place to look for that happening. Roosevelt wins again in 1936, which is a race we'll talk about later this season uh, on our conventions episode. Um, But in 1940, he's running in The World is at War just a year earlier 
uh, Hitler and the Nazis had invaded Poland. They'd taken over France. The Blitz was, was underway, uh, well underway in Britain. Um, times were tough. And Roosevelt had managed to keep us out of war. But Roosevelt's facing a challenge from Republican businessman Wendell Wilkie. And he knows how important Ohio is going to be to his campaign. And we talk with Kyle Conduct. Roosevelt would make his final speech of that campaign season in Cleveland to you know over 10,000 people. You'll hear it in this clip that we play. Um, but he, why does he go to Cleveland? What's so important about Cleveland? And it would be a huge city in his reelection in 1940. Uh, it would actually really be the margin of his victory here in Ohio over Wilkie in 1940. We talked to Kyle Condict about the 1940 election uh, here in Ohio, the importance of Cleveland, made on November 2nd, just days before the 1940 election. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, in making this my final national address of this campaign. Tonight, in Cleveland, I am happy through this great audience of my old friends to give this message to America. For the past seven years, I have had the high honor and the grave responsibility of leadership of the American people. They have marched forward right up to the very threshold of the future, a future which holds the fulfillment of our hopes for real freedom, real prosperity, real peace. I want that march to continue for four more years. Yeah, basically the city of Cleveland voted for Roosevelt in a landslide by about 150,000 votes. And that was essentially his statewide margin of victory. So basically the Wilkie-Roosevelt race was, was, was effectively a tie outside of the, the borders of the city of Cleveland. But um, as it was, Roosevelt ended up winning the state by about four and a half points. Um, and it was really powered by, uh, by his margin in Cleveland. And, and again, you, by, by the time you get to 1940, you really start to see the modern political alignment uh, emerging in that uh, Northwest Ohio is starting to become very, very Republican, um, but Democrats are able to win in the state by uh, particularly uh, really performing quite well in Northeast Ohio. Uh, and Roosevelt had these uh, huge landslide margins and, uh, you know, he won Mahoning County 67-33, won Cuyahoga County uh, 62-38. Uh, a number of other places, uh, uh, including Jefferson and Belmont counties on, along the Ohio River, so uh, like city of Steubenville and St. Clairsville. Um, those places uh, were historically Democrat or became pretty democratic at that time, in part because they did have a lot of heavy industry, so that sort of tied them 
a little bit more to Northeast Ohio than the rest of uh, uh, the rest of Appalachia. Uh, and also there were, there were other industries like coal mining and, and that, that uh, a lot of the workers in those industries um, really were, were pretty enamored of FDR and the new deal. Uh, so again, 1940 is a, it's, it's an interesting map to look at in, uh, in, in, in the sort of, sort of genesis of, of modern uh, Ohio presidential voting patterns. The, and both the good and the bad politically for the Democrats in, in the creation of the new deal um, coalition is, is evident in that, yes, the Democrats are doing way better in big cities and in industrial areas um, and places with sort of more recent immigrants, but they really lose a lot of ground in rural America, essentially. And so that's the trade-off. And for FDR, it was a good trade-off. Legends like FDR coming to Cleveland, Ohio on their last you know, campaign speech shows you the importance Ohio's played throughout the 20th century. I'm reminded of a, of a day in, in, in May of 1980. In Columbus, when President uh, Jimmy Carter has a rally, uh, his rally is at kind of like over by the Nationwide Arena now, um, and he's got you know thousands of people at his rally. And just three blocks away, the same day, an hour earlier, uh, the challenger, Republican uh, governor from from California, Ronald Reagan, has a rally at the State House where he's speaking to thousands of his supporters. They can hear each other on you know three, four blocks away. In uh, a, a day like that, in May of 1980, it just shows you the importance uh, of Ohio in every campaign since I've been alive, uh, and, and really for generations here in the Buckeye State. That's one-fifth of the national total of $883 million, a figure that could top $1 billion by Election Day. In Columbus, more than 6,600 ads just this month. That's 333 a day. Candidates are spending so much time here, it's as if they're running for president of Ohio. A total of 30 days since Labor Day, 15 of them in October. Why Ohio? Voters here have picked the winner in every election since 1960, and no Republican has won the White House without it. The urban north, heavy with the auto industry, leans Democratic. The rural south, where mining is important, trends Republican. The last half of this show, we're going to focus uh, on President Obama, his two successful campaigns in 2008 and 2012 to become the first African-American president in United States history, a Democrat from Chicago, Illinois. Our guest today is Mike O'Neill. Mike uh, was in my band, my college band, Smoke Jones. He was a great guitar player. Uh, we had a pretty awesome band, some amazing originals. Uh, I'd love to wish we would have recorded that album. But Mike moved on from college. We went to college together at the College of Worcester in Northeast Ohio. And Mike moved into politics and eventually uh, getting involved in the Obama campaign, working in the White House. And we'll talk about all that and and really running the Ohio uh, primary campaign as well. We talked with Mike. uh, One of the most fun interviews I've done. It was so great to to Zoom chat with him. Uh, And we'll have some laughs along the way. But we start with really how he got his his beginning in Democratic campaign politics. Uh, he starts working for Howard Dean, the governor, who was a front runner in early 2004, and how it was fortuitous that Dean has this meltdown. We'll play the famous clip uh, that would ultimately lead Mike to the Obama campaign. I I got a little lucky um, when I graduated uh, from the Harvard of Wayne County, Ohio, the College of Worcester. I got on the Dean campaign and, and kind of just started jumping on campaigns uh, after that. Um, 
after the Dean scream, and for those of you at home that were born in the 90s, uh, give it a Google. Uh, one of those political moments uh, kind of went viral before things really went viral. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! And that's just the Dean, the Dean scream. Uh, what a moment. There's a great Dave Chappelle clip. Uh, where he does a version of it. Um, but the 2004 election, Dean would actually lose out to John Kerry. And it's uh, we have to play a clip of, because this is where President Barack Obama uh, bursts onto the scene at the Democratic Convention in Boston in 2004. And Mike was there. We talk about it, and we play his famous speech that put the, then he was running for senator of Illinois, uh, that put Barack Obama on the map. And so after that, I, I went to Washington, D.C. and worked at the DSCC, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Um, and in 2004, um, we lost a lot of Senate races. But there were two bright spots. It was Salazar in Colorado. And then uh, Barack Obama won his Senate race um, in Illinois uh, and ran away with it. Everybody kind of had a sense that this guy was going to be something special. And then we learned that we were all, I was in Boston at the convention and his speech was. It was awesome. It was awesome, um, uh, which is also a concern for, you know, not having conventions maybe uh, because of the coronavirus outbreak, you know, uh, people get a platform to, uh, you know, enter a new political uh, level like Barack Obama did. And so now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us, the spin masters, the negative ad peddlers who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well. I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Mike worked on Sherrod Brown's campaign in Ohio in 2006. He beat, uh, actually beat our now governor, DeWine, in 2006. And in 2007... He decides to take a chance on this little-known senator, Barack Obama. He moves to Chicago, uh, and they begin launching their exploratory committee and then their campaign, which Mike's involvement would begin in, I believe, February 2007, a full year before the Iowa caucus that Obama would surprisingly win. Uh, Mike talks about those first cities and a tour through Ohio uh, that really led him to believe that this, this guy might just be our next president. I did my first events with Barack Obama. Uh, we were in Louisville, Kentucky on a Sunday night, Cincinnati uh, before 9 a.m. on a Monday morning, Columbus for lunch, and then we ended that day, that Monday, in Cleveland, Ohio. It was We're February 25th, 2007. We were at the Westin in Cincinnati for breakfast. We had hundreds of people show up in short notice to come for a breakfast on a Monday morning. And that's when we knew something was, was going to be different yeah. about this campaign. So we, we did, were Cincinnati at that Weston for a breakfast. Um, the newspaper said we had about 1,000 people, but it's probably a little less than that. Um, but it was just hard work, people excited to come out. Uh, there was even a mom there with her 
with her child. They stood outside. They had, they had bought tickets, and she just wanted her son uh, to see who could be the first you know, black president of the United States. And so there's some powerful moments like that along the way um, that just make you realize it's, it's bigger than just you know, politics. I got a speeding ticket on the way to Columbus uh, trying to beat him there. I had a rented car full of T-shirts and posters. Got a speeding ticket on the way to Columbus. He beat me to the Columbus event, which was awesome for like my second month on the job. And then I got a speeding ticket on the way to Cleveland. So on 71, I got two speeding tickets on the same day, which was just spectacular, um, which I had to talk about when I ended up working uh, for the federal government, had to answer to background check about that. Cincinnati, huge event. Columbus, it was a, a friend of his, did an event, it was kind of small. And then we got to Cleveland and we did two events and then he gave a speech um, that night in Cleveland, right? And so in 24 hours, we did four events and we realized after that Louisville event and a little bit because of Cincinnati, that to grow our list as fast as we needed to and, and to expand the campaign, um, we had to do low dollar fundraising events. We did yeah. suggested price so that nobody would be turned away. And it was really successful. And uh, it was that, 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 you know, a year later, I'd be the political director for the primary in Ohio. Obama's up against a tough field. Hillary Clinton, the presumptive nominee, John Edwards, who ran uh, in 2004 as Kerry's vice president uh, and had run a strong campaign in 04 and was, was again a, a front runner in 2008. And then President Obama really being the, the third option. I think even Biden had, had looked at doing a run in 2008. But we talked to Mike about Obama had a nickname for him, uh, 20 Clicks or 20. That's what he called him in the White House. And I had to ask him, where did that come from? President Obama calls me 20 Clicks because I, I had this awful fundraiser I did early on in St. Louis. And I told him that, you know, for every photo, it's a click. And I told him there'd probably be about 20 clicks. I, didn't, I was understaffed and these volunteers just walked away. So about 200 people were in the photo line. And uh, so when he saw me next, he goes, let me guess about 20 clicks, O'Neill. So when we got to the White House, he would call me 20. And he was like, what is he talking about? I was like, it's, I don't want to talk about it. I'm still living in, in Cleveland in, in 2008. Um, it's actually a campaign where I, I saw President Obama in Cleveland. I saw him with Bruce Springsteen after a, a Browns game in the outdoor mall there by the kind of the free stamp uh, right by the lake. It was an awesome moment. He gave a great speech um, on a Sunday after uh, we walked out of the Cleveland Browns loss, I'm sure. Uh, and then Bruce Springsteen performed. That was the Sunday before the 2008 election. Two days before that, I just couldn't get in. I didn't have a ticket. Um, Jay-Z played at the queue. Uh, and it was really a, a party for you know President Obama rally. Uh, but I know some friends who went, and, and Mike was there, and he tells us about this you know, pretty awesome campaign moment uh, on the shores of Lake Erie at Quicken Loans Arena with Jay-Z and LeBron James. I'll say as a, a fan of, of LeBron James and you know, Jay-Z, we had the queue completely packed, and Jay-Z did a live set. This uh, is 08. This is 08. LeBron was on stage essentially mouthing and dancing, mm -hmm to everything that Jay-Z did. And he, he had a live band. I mean, it was incredible. I don't know if you ever see, seen Jay-Z Unplugged. It's a pretty um, amazing. It, yeah, there's some great tracks on that. I mean, I think The Roots were live on that, but uh, yeah. as a backing band. But his band at the queue that day was incredible. And LeBron, we kept being like, don't you have somewhere else to be? I mean, he, <laughs> he knew every word 
he was just standing on stage with the band. It was, it was pretty incredible. And then we got to, we got to say hi to those guys right afterwards. Um, and uh, I don't think I need to tell you this. LeBron's tall, <laughs> really tall. Yeah. Um, but no, some of the moments, you know, especially in Ohio where um, Eddie George got involved in the campaign, you know, um, and, uh, and so, you know, you get a couple guys, you know, heroes growing up for the Buckeyes. Um, you know, I mean, this stuff's just incredible. And you get to, I got to meet Eddie George at the White House because he really helped um, with uh, getting people to sign up on healthcare.gov, right? So he was a big proponent of the guy, that guy between Broadway, getting his grad degree, making sure people had healthcare. Um, Jim Jackson, right? I reached out to him. Uh, uh, he was a Toledo guy. And, uh, you know, he supported the campaign there in Toledo as well. Um, and so it was fun to reach out to, you know, just all these Buckeyes when we got to town, um, which was really fun too. Republican campaign that year also had some really, really crazy moments. None was crazier than the announcement of Sarah Palin as the vice presidential candidate, the second woman to be nominated at the time on a major party ticket. This governor, one-term governor from Alaska, uh, was a surprise pick. Our guest to talk uh, about this event in Dayton, because it's in Dayton, Ohio, in the summer of 2008, when John McCain tries to revitalize his campaign. Uh, by announcing this outsider, Sarah Palin. Our guest is, is Mike Albritton, friend of the show, uh, attorney, amateur, historian, one of the most well-read men I know when it comes to American history. Uh, and Mike, a graduate of the University of Dayton, he talks about that announcement on the campus of Wright State University. Sarah Palin was introduced um, by John McCain at the Nutter Center in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Um, it was kind of interesting. I was watching that speech, and I uh, I uh, remember going to the Nutter Center to watch uh, some Dayton Bomber hockey games when I was in college, and just <laughs> thinking about um, how close they were to the uh, where the ice would have been. And Is that the ECHL? At the, it's the ECHL. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I don't know if Dayton even has a team right now. But um, back then, when I was in college, it was the Dayton Bombers. And uh, so anyway, uh, McCain introduced Palin. And she was kind of out of nowhere. She, it was a surprise pick. One-term governor, although she was popular in Alaska. But there, there was just something that uh, Palin uh, appealed to the screening committee for McCain. They liked, they liked her. He liked her. She's fought oil companies and party bosses and do-nothing bureaucrats and anyone who puts their interests before the interests of the people she swore an oath to serve. She's exactly who I need. She's exactly who this country needs to help me fight. To help me fight the same old Washington politics of me first and country second. My friends and fellow Americans, I am very pleased and very privileged to introduce to you the next vice president of the United States, Governor Sarah Palin of the great state of Alaska. Palin impresses in Dayton that day. She goes on the TV shows and she goes on the campaign trail and there's a populist appeal to her. Uh, and, and she does raise 
McCain's uh, his poll numbers rise, and it's a much closer election upon that announcement. Uh, we talked to Mike just about the boon that she was to uh, the McCain campaign. She was all over the place, all over the news. It was a risky pick, and and certainly starting off, it, it paid off well. She brought up McCain's poll numbers. She appealed to uh, a segment of the population that appreciated her um, folksy nature. The more, though, that she was asked questions, they, they, I think the campaign, or at least the, the media, noticed that, that she was only allowed to speak one-on-one uh, initially with and maybe three interviews a day at most. Yeah. And she, she did very well. Starting off, she did very well. And she helped, helped the McCain campaign. The majority of the national media was certainly in favor of this historic Obama presidency during the campaign. If you don't see that, you're not being intellectually honest with yourself. Um, not saying everyone, I'm saying the majority uh, of the national media. McCain was an older candidate. Um, and, you know, this idea that she would be one heartbeat away from the presidency. Um, but as Mike makes the point, not everybody who went after her was, you know, a, some kind of attack dog. Um, and we play you some clips of, because Sarah Palin makes some pretty big blunders on the campaign trail in 2008. She was inexperienced. And when you ask her questions about foreign policy, as the governor of Alaska, the mayor of a small town, Wasilla, Alaska, mother of five. I mean, some of these things were just things that she did not have experience with. And the national media made that point over and over. You can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska. Well, explain to me why that enhances your foreign policy credentials. Well, it certainly does. As Putin rears his head and, and uh, comes into the airspace of the United States of America, where, where do they go? It, it's Alaska. Do you agree with the Bush doctrine? In what respect, Charlie? The Bush, well, what, do you, what do you interpret it to be? His worldview. See. What newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped for this to stay informed and to understand the I've world? read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like what I mean, specifically? I'm curious that you... Um, all of them, any of them that um, have, have been in front of me over all these years. Well, some of the interviews did not go well for her, uh, particularly the Katie Couric interview. Right, yeah. And uh, I, I know it's always popular to uh, blame the media, but Katie Couric is not known as being an attack dog. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, it, um, uh, these were, a lot of those questions were softball questions. And um, when she was asked about what, what publications did she read, what ended up happening, though, is she did rebound when she uh, made her debates with Joe Biden. Uh, yeah. She did perform well. Uh, because uh, the campaign just spent hours um, working with her to stay on these certain points. Don't go off these points. Um, when you kind of go off on your own tangents, that's when she would get into a lot of trouble. Um, certain political leaders might want to take note of that. And again, she she appealed to um, a segment of the population, I think, that just probably felt sick and tired of what they considered Eastern elites. I think she just, she just resonated with a certain segment of the population that later candidates would too. And it kind of opened up the door to, to future candidates to say, to, to run a, um, outside the mainstream kind of race. We talked to Mike about Palin does have an appeal to a certain faction of the Republican Party, a faction that would rise to power in later years. And we hear another clip of her 
talking about President Obama's lack of experience, something that she was hit hard on by the national media, uh, talks about that in her speech at the Republican convention in 2008. like a community organizer, except that you have actual responsibilities. I might add that in small towns, we don't quite know what to make of a candidate who lavishes praise on working people when they're listening and then talks about how bitterly they cling to their religion and guns when those people aren't listening. We tend to prefer candidates who don't talk about us one way in Scranton and another way in San Francisco. As I said earlier, I, I saw President Obama with, with Springsteen. I also was invited, I think it was my brother, we got invited to sit on stage for a McCain-Palin rally uh, in eastern Ohio. I was all over this campaign then uh, as a younger man. There was some ugliness that you saw in the crowd when she would bring up President Obama, when she would bring up Democratic uh, policies, and they were racist sometimes, and they were bigoted, and they were misogynist. I mean, even though it was a female candidate, um, we see some of that ugliness that has come to American politics really bubble over in 2008. Talks about how McCain handled that. McCain, really a, a gentleman when it comes to campaigning. Um, and we play you, you know, some of these clips of McCain shutting down this small but vocal portion of the American electorate. A door was open in 2008, um, and I think uh, McCain, John McCain noticed it too. As McCain and, and his campaign would later come to find out, some unfortunate uh, uh, views that people had started to come about, particularly about it was Barack ugly. Obama. Yeah, it was ugliness. ugly. It was ugly. And... To his credit, uh, and I, I'm a big fan of John McCain. I always have been. Uh, I got to meet him once um, back in 2000, and, and he recognized that. And so, you know, one of my favorite moments of 2008 is when you have uh, John McCain being asked by that woman. He's a Muslim. He's a Muslim, and McCain's like, no. I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not... No, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. No, ma he's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank. You. And uh, frankly, we're we're scared. Um, we're scared of an Obama presidency. First of all. I want to be president of the United States, and obviously, I do not want Senator Obama to be. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared as president of the United States. Now, I, I just, now, just, now, now look, I, I, if I didn't think I wouldn't be one heck of a lot better president, I wouldn't be running, okay? And that's the point. That's, that's the point. I admire Senator Obama and his accomplishments. I will respect him. And I want, no, no. I want everyone to be respectful, and let's make sure we are, because that's the way politics should be conducted in America. So let's make sure that we're all respectful. Sarah Palin definitely made history. 
uh, we talk with Mike just about uh, her impact on American politics and her candidacy as vice president in 2008. But I do feel that uh, that kind of anti-intellectual mentality uh, seeped through in that campaign. I don't want to blame Sarah Palin for it. Uh, but there is a, there is a nexus. There is a connection to the tea baggers and and what what happened at, resulting from two thousand eight. Before we finish the the impact that Ohio would have on that f- famous two thousand eight election. Uh, what happens next in, in October of 2008 reminds me of something from 1840, uh, the election that we'll talk about in episode five, uh, the famous uh, election of Tippy Canoe and Tyler II. It's the impact of random Ohio citizens on national presidential elections. Uh, it's happened a couple of times, and the first time you see it is in 1840, a man named John Bear, he was known as the Buckeye Blacksmith. But he would have a huge impact on that 1840 election, become a surrogate for William Henry Harrison. Uh, and again, no political experience, totally by chance. And we'll talk about the 2008 example in Ohio of that with Joe the Plumber. Uh, but we talk with our guest, uh, who will be our guest in Episode 5, Ron Schaefer, great author and historian, uh, about this, this random Ohioan, the Buckeye Blacksmith. Yeah, another man who spread the, the Buckeye name for Ohio was this Buckeye blacksmith. He was just a, a little uh, blacksmith. His name was John Bear. Uh, he was from Pickaway County, and he went to this rally in Columbus. Uh, and the first day, his buddies pushed him up on one of these speaker stands. So he gave this speech, and uh, the, the Whig leaders were so impressed by it, the next day they put him on the main stand uh, to speak to the whole convention. And he was such a hit there that they sent him out on a national speaking tour. He went, he went all the way to Washington and spoke to uh, members of Congress. And he was this folksy blacksmith, and, and the crowds loved him. And, and, and Twigs actually had like hundreds of these surrogate speakers around the country, including Abraham Lincoln in Illinois. And they, call, they were called uh, slang wangers. But this Buckeye blacksmith, he gave more speeches than anybody. He gave 331 speeches, and he actually had a, a, an amazing impact on the campaign. He was, he was the first Joe the Plumber. And Ron, Ron mentions it. You can't talk about the 2008 election in Ohio and not talk about Joe the Plumber, Joseph Wurzelbacher, uh, a, a plumber from Toledo, Ohio. We talk with Mike about how he would come across President Obama in Toledo, he's just doing a, a walkthrough, a, a meet and greet on the streets uh, in a neighborhood in Toledo. And Wurzelbacher approaches him and asks him about his tax plan. We're rejoined by uh, Mike Albritton to discuss the chance meeting on the streets of Toledo between Joseph Wurzelbacher and Barack Obama. Obama was on the, came, uh, was on the campaign trail, and uh, that's where he came across Joe the Plumber. And Joe said, hey, I, I'm looking at starting a business or buying a business, and if I make more than 250000 a year, and your tax plan, I'm going to get hit hard. Obama uh, goes on a, uh, tries to kind of explain to him as quickly as possible and within a soundbite, but he's throwing statistics out there, and and the bottom line is Joe was, 
saying, look, it, it would not be worth my while if I'm going to get hit hard with, with these taxes to, to buy this business. Obama would say, well, first you get a tax credit on it. And, and with the, the point that Obama was trying to make, which he was able to later, later clarify, was that, look, you know, five years ago, if you were under my tax plan, you would, you would be in a better position to buy this business than you are now. So think about the people that you know, were, don't make as much as you do now, that they, they would be in that position to buy. There, there was some back and forth. Of course, McCain's campaign uh, jumped on that. Name's Joe Wurzelbach. Good to see you, Joe. I'm getting ready to buy a company that makes 200, $250,000, $270,000, $80,000 a year. Your new tax plan is going to tax me more, isn't it? Well, here's what's going to happen. The, uh, if you're a small business, which you would qualify, first of all, you get a 50% tax credit, so you get a cut of taxes for your health care. So you would actually get a tax cut on that front. If your revenue is above 250, then from... 250 down, your taxes are going to stay the same. It is true that for, say, 250 up from 250 to 300 or so. Well, here's my question. Well, hold on, say, I, I just want to answer your question. The, uh, so, the, uh, so for that additional amount, you'd go from 36 to 39%, which is what it was under Bill Clinton. Well, the reason why I ask you about the American dream, right. Right. I mean, I've worked hard. I'm a plumber. We you know, I work, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, buying this company, and I'm going to continue to work that way. Right. Now, if I buy another truck and add right. something else to it and, you know, build the company, right. you know, I'm getting taxed more and more well, for fulfilling, for fulfilling the American dream. So well, here, but here's, 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 here's a way of thinking about it. Now, look, I, nobody likes high taxes. No, not right? at all. Of course not. So, but what's happened is, is that we end up, We've cut taxes a lot for folks like me who make a lot more than 250. Mm -hmm. We haven't given a break to folks who make less. And as a consequence, the average wage and income for just ordinary folks, the vast majority of Americans, has actually gone down over the last eight years. So all I want to do is, I, I, I've got a net tax cut. The only thing that changes is I'm going to cut taxes a little bit more for the folks who are most in need. And we'll, we'll, for the 5% of the folks who are doing very well, even though they've been working hard, and I understand that, I appreciate that, I just want to make sure that they're paying a little bit more in order to pay for those other tax cuts. Now, I, I, re I respect the disagreement, but I just want you to be clear, it's not that I want to punish your success, I just want to make sure that everybody who is behind you, that they've got a chance at success too. You know, Because I, my attitude is that if, if the economy is good for folks from the bottom up, it's going to be good for everybody. If you've got a plumbing business, uh, you're going to be better off if you've got a whole bunch of customers who can afford to hire you. And right now, everybody's so pinched that business is bad for everybody. And, and I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. But I, listen, I, I respect what you do, and I respect your question. And the, uh, you know, even if I don't go get your vote, I'm still going to be working hard on your behalf because I want to make sure small businesses are what creates jobs in this country, and I want to encourage them. In the era of, of camera phones and the internet, you would think that that what you know seemingly civil exchange uh, between two an American citizen and a presidential candidate that would be the end of it. But no, the McCain campaign down uh, quite a few percentage points latches onto it in the final debate, which is just two three days after this Toledo meetup. We talk with Mike about just the impact Joe the plumber suddenly has on this national you know, presidential election, this uh, unknown you know, plumber from Toledo, Ohio, and how the McCain campaign would use it. And it becomes really the center of the debate 
in their final debate at Hofstra University. What uh, they did was they they just f- focused on 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 that that moment. Um, I think uh, during the debate, Joe the plumber's name was mentioned no less than twenty six times, and it must have been absolutely surreal for this guy sitting in his living room watching TV, hearing his name being mentioned and um, or and used. Um, this guy being put in the middle of, a, of an argument regarding class warfare. Uh, Obama was trying to say, look, under my tax plan, 95% of Americans will get a tax break. McCain would counter that everybody should get a tax break. And then, you know, he would focus on Joe the plumber, Joe the plumber. And and Obama would fight back saying, you don't care about Joe the plumber. You care about Joe the CEO. You care about <laughs> uh, ExxonMobil, you know. And, and, and But it, what happened was, was with the Joe the plumber then, uh, Obama use the words uh, spread the wealth i think the word spread the wealth came out and that's that's something that the, the the mccain campaign wanted to run with i would like to mention that a couple of days ago senator obama was out in ohio and he had an encounter with a guy who's a plumber His name is joe wurzelberger and he wanted to buy the business but he looked at your tax plan and he saw that he was going to pay much higher taxes you were going to put him in a higher tax bracket joe was trying to realize the American dream. Now, Senator Obama talks about the very, very rich. Joe, I want to tell you, I'll not only help that you buy that business that you worked your whole life for, and what you want to do to Joe the plumber, and millions more like him, is have their taxes increased and not be able to realize the American dream is of owning their own business. Joe believes. <laughs> the, 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 he's been watching some ads of uh, Senator McCain's. Let me tell you what I'm actually going to do. Um, I think tax policy is a major difference between Senator McCain and myself. Uh, and we both want to cut taxes. The difference is who we want to cut taxes for. The last point I'll make about small businesses, not only uh, do 98% of small businesses make less than $250,000, but I also want to give them additional tax breaks because they are the drivers of the economy. They produce the most jobs. You know what Senator Obama ended up his conversation with Joe the plumber? We need to spread the wealth around. In other words, we're going to take Joe's money, give it to Senator Obama, and let him spread the wealth around. I want Joe the plumber to spread that wealth around. You told him you wanted to spread the, uh, the wealth around. The whole premise behind Senator Obama's plans are class warfare, let's spread the wealth around. I want small businesses, and by the way, the small businesses that we're talking about that would receive an increase in their taxes right now. Who, why would you want to increase anybody's taxes right now? Why would you want to do that? Anyone, anyone in America. Okay, I'm not going to, sure. we're if not going to do that in my administration. If I can answer the question. Uh, number one, uh, I want to cut taxes for 95% of Americans. Now. It is true that my friend and supporter Warren Buffett, for example, could afford to pay a little more in taxes. We're talking about in order, <laughs> in order to give, in order to give additional tax cuts to Joe the plumber before he was at the point where he could make two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I think ExxonMobil, which made twelve billion dollars record profits over the last several quarters, they can afford to pay a little more so that ordinary families. They need a break. So, look, nobody likes taxes. I would prefer that none of us had to pay taxes, including myself. 
But ultimately, we've got to pay for the core investments that make this economy strong. And if somebody's nobody likes do taxes, it. let's not raise anybody's taxes. Well, I don't okay. mind paying a little more. As Obama scrambles to, to answer this Joe the Plumber situation. McCain's bringing it up at every rally. Uh, Joe's uh, making appearances with McCain, although ultimately he'd back away from him after the campaign and say he didn't really support him. He would later say McCain used him and ruined his life. He'd said a lot of things, some pretty terrible things about immigration and gun control over the years. We talk when bring back Mike O'Neill from, from the Obama campaign to talk about how they responded to that. If, if you remember in 2008, Obama was being labeled as like a socialist, that his programs were going to... Uh, you know, bring about socialism to this country. Uh, and this interaction with Joe the Plumber, uh, the McCain campaign, was saying that, that highlighted that. We talked with Mike just about how they uh, respond in October, right before this election. Think, like if you're a Democrat or Republican, there's just stereotypes you get associated with, right? I think it was Mayor Pete that said, well, we might as well, they're going to call us socialists anyways, right? <laughs> might as well just talk about our programs. But you can bat it with facts, right? We, we just had a an excellent plan and we just had it fact checked right to say hey look here's what we're doing to help small businesses and that's that's what we took away from that encounter too right it's just we had a really good plan for small businesses uh through tax structure and so you know we had it fact checked and um it's funny looking back at it now um none of it's radical so ever but i think that you know when uh you're barack obama and you weren't as well known of a candidate as say a Clinton or an Edwards that everybody known. Um, you, you as a campaign, you wanted to find yourself, you know, before your opponent does. It's just kind of politics 101. It was important to get out there and, uh, and to make sure that you back up the plans that you have with facts. And so that was important to us. Late in that campaign, uh, the economic downturn, the, the housing crisis and the failure of all these banks hits home. McCain actually suspended his campaign at one point, but it was just too much. Obama's candidacy and, and Mike and the Obama team were in such a great campaign. Uh, he had captured the nation's imagination. After eight years of Bush, they wanted a change too. Uh, we talked with, with Mike about the election of Barack Hussein Obama, the 44th president. It was 2008, though. To, to, to be quite honest with you, everything that happened afterwards you mean after eight years of and you have the situation in the iraq war you had hurricane katrina you had the 2008 housing market collapse the 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 banks going you know lehman brothers all the banks the wall street collapse it would have been very very hard for any republican uh to beat barack obama under any circumstance, whether you have, so, so this notion that, you know, Sarah Palin cost the campaign, McCain campaign, I, I think that's kind of hard to believe. And, and I don't know what percentage of votes it may have cost his campaign, if at all, maybe it just helped, but I just, or I don't care how many Joe the plumbers you have. It's, it's the situation in 2008 was really, um, it was an uphill battle for John McCain to overcome that Barack Obama, 47 years old, will become the president-elect of the United States. He will be the first African-American president of the United States. Obama wins the presidency and Mike goes to work for him in the White House as a special assistant to the president. 
uh, and we just had to talk about you know that that time in, in Mike's life. We had so much fun. Again, he's one of the funniest dudes I know, uh, and I'm sure we haven't heard the last from him when it comes to American politics. And I want to thank him for joining us. But we talked to him about just some of those stories serving uh, in the Obama White House. You know, after the campaign, uh, you know, folks either continue on on a campaign side, say like the DNC or, or go work other campaigns, right, um, to kind of keep going. Um, I was lucky I got to go work in, in, in government. In uh, My first job, uh, you know, was to go work in presidential personnel. And I remember somebody had offered a job touring with Eric Clapton. They were like, do you want to, would you like to go on tour with Eric Clapton's team? I, we know you like music a lot. I met a bunch of bands and things along the way. And I was like, are you crazy? We just spent two years getting Barack Obama elected. I'm going to go, you know, going to go serve, right? This is what we fought for. And then I remember like a year later being like, did you say Eric Clapton? Like Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton? I moved over to the chief of staff's office. And so we kind of helped uh, work and coordinate with the different agencies. There's, you know, everything from HHS, you know, to the EPA, um, the chief of staff's office uh, really helps uh, the White House run and helps yeah. uh, the president execute upon what he does. So I worked uh, for a senior advisor to uh, the, the president based out of the chief of staff's office. And so, you know, in the, in the few years I worked there, we worked everything from the trips the president would take. Um, and occasionally uh, the president travels overseas and you, you get to go on those trips. And um, that's, that's where you realize just how incredible our United States, you know, really is. You get to work with these the secret service who are just spectacular. And then you get to meet a lot of the military personnel who help, uh, make these trips happen and protect the president um, uh, around the world. And you've just never seen anything like it. Yeah. Uh, we got to go to Seoul for a, a G20. Uh, we got to go to, to Belfast, you know, for a speech he gave on, on peace there. But, you know, uh, in one of our tasks we got to do, I got to go to Normandy for the 70th anniversary of D-Day. Um, and if you want to be humbled pretty damn quick, mm -hmm you know, you sit on a beach with, with people who uh, essentially saved the world, right? I remember uh, talking to a veteran, it was really hot. It was really hot that day. I remember meeting a veteran uh, who wasn't shaded and we just were helping hand out water in the morning before I got started. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm so sorry of the conditions here. We have some extra water. I wish it wasn't so difficult today. And uh, he turned to me, he goes, it was a lot better than the last time I was here. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's those little moments, you know, you do your job and you, you try and be the, you know, the best public servant you can be when you're in these roles working for the federal government. But then you get those moments like that where you'll never forget it as long as you live. Mike's still on the team in 2012. His support is holding steady. He's not an incredibly popular president. Uh, a lot of those things, the hope and change, uh, all the promise that he had shown on the campaign trail, in reality, in the gridlocked Washington, it was hard to get anything done. He had gotten the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. You might remember at that press conference when they announced it through a Democratic Congress. Biden leans to him and is picked up on the mic saying, this is a big blanking deal. Um, but again, Obama had serious opposition to a second term. He's running against Mitt Romney, popular moderate governor of, Utah, of, governor of Massachusetts, uh, currently the senator in Utah. And Romney was running a strong campaign. 
and he goes to Defiance, Ohio, which is the hometown of, of our guest, Mike O'Neill, uh, for one of the funnier moments that we were able to find on YouTube from this campaign. He's joined on stage by, by Meatloaf, the, the pop singer from the 70s and 80s. Um, Mike reminds us of this really funny and really cringeworthy campaign moment in Defiance, Ohio. No, so Defiance is in Northwest Ohio. It's the seat of Defiance County. John McCain went there uh, in 2008, and then Mitt Romney came to Defiance, came to our uh, our football stadium, um, and it was he and Meatloaf, um, along with I think Brooks of Brooks and Dunn, uh, came no, to a Dunn. rally. Just Brooks. Was it? Yeah, it was. You know, I don't think there was anything going on, but I think it was just easier for Brooks. <laughs> But um, yeah, he came to a, they came to a rally. And if you Google that, um, they sing God Bless America, I believe. And Meatloaf just wails on it. I mean, he starts to go, he starts to riff a little bit on it. Sure, and, as he and, does. And Mitt Romney looks pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I highly recommend uh, playing a, a clip of that if you can. terrible go find that video it's worth it just to see how uncomfortable Mitt Romney is a clip we played earlier uh, about them running for president of Ohio that was from the 2012 campaign Romney v Obama and Ohio was the centerpiece of, of that election in many ways uh, Romney's here all the time Obama's here all the time and it reminded us Obama kicked off his campaign in Ohio in Columbus Ohio in 2012 uh, we talked to, to Mike O'Neill from the Obama White House. Why would you start your campaign in Columbus, in Ohio, and, and really talk about that 2012 campaign and some of the challenges that it would show? And it was a closer election between Romney and Obama than it was against McCain. And we'll play you a clip of President Obama as he announces his candidacy for a second term from the floor of Value City Arena, the Schottenstein Center at the Ohio State University. He and his friends in Congress think that the same bad ideas will lead to a different result. Or they're just hoping you won't remember what happened the last time we tried it their way. Well, Ohio, I'm here to say that we were there, we remember, and we are not going back. We are moving this country forward. We have come too far to abandon the change we fought for these past few years. We have to move forward to the future we imagined in 2008 where everyone gets a fair shot and everyone does their fair share 
and everyone plays by the same rules. That's the choice in this election. And that's why I'm running for a second term as President of the United States. It's still a fact that no Republican has won the White House without winning Ohio. You know, Ohio is just such uh, an important state when you run for president. Um, not just because of the electoral votes, um, but now it's because of the focus on doing well in Ohio. If you can't do well in Ohio, even in a primary now, um, people call into question, you know, your viability as a candidate. Um, and I remember it was, you know, Kennedy, I think was, Kennedy lost Ohio, um, but won the election and said something, <laughs> something like, great crowds, no votes or something yeah, like that. No, no place do I get more applause and less votes than Franklin County, Ohio. Yeah. Um, and so Ohio is important, right? And it was important to us um, because 2008, um, we won, right? We won Ohio by maybe four and a half percent. I think we won Ohio. And look, we won, we won, I think we were the first presidential campaign to win. It was either Cincinnati or Hamilton County since FDR, right? Yeah. So um, we, we had a good election night. You know, I was, in, I was in Columbus there for essentially the last month. It was incredible. So we knew um, because of history, right? Because of how we performed in 2008, we knew it was, I think everybody knew it was no secret. It's just going to be harder in 2012 uh, to win re-election, right? It was tough uh, because of the economy. It was tough um, because Mitt Romney um, was going to do well. Um, we ended up winning by just under 3%, right? So it was a tighter margin um, in Ohio. There was one county we were one vote in, in 2012. I think it was Pike County. You have to check me on that. Those are the, those are the margins, right? It was, and so, you know, if you're going to win, you're going to have to win some states like Ohio. So why not go kick off your campaign in Ohio, right? There's a couple of states you have to win. You got you to focus on Ohio, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Florida. So important. And it's funny how the map is a little different now. And like Mike said, it, it was a closer election in 2012. Uh, and Obama wins by about two and a half points here in Ohio, wins a, a somewhat more comfortable uh, electoral college victory. Um, but it really was close in Ohio. Like Mike says, in Pike County, after a recount, Romney won Pike County, Ohio by one vote. We couldn't help but, but turn our attention to the 2020 election. Uh, we were talking with Mike, and, and we play for you kind of his thoughts on what he thinks is going to be, and, and I do as well, a very, very tight election. I think it's going to be close, maybe like in 1876, right? Old Rutherford B. Hayes, pride of Fremont, Ohio. We keep talking about the previous presidential election when Trump won, right? Wisconsin, Michigan, you'd never even think about losing those. Uh, we, Michigan was the first state that McCain pulled out of in 2008, and here the Democrats lost it right? In 2016. Yeah. So it feels like a lifetime ago, but it really isn't that far long ago in presidential campaign politics that these states, and then you had Ohio, right? Ohio, Trump won pretty handily. You know, I think Michigan is, you know, there was something like 79,000 people voted for every office in Michigan, but left president blank, right? In Michigan, I think those people are going to come out to vote. And Michigan was decided by 10,000 votes, right? So um, that's not a lot. Uh, I think Wisconsin, uh, for a variety of reasons, is what, if I'm running a presidential campaign, that is your focus, right? Um, Democrats 
lost it in 2016, Wisconsin is going to be something you just want to keep an eye on. Um, and then Florida is, is always Florida, right? Man, um, that is going to be a state where uh, the president spends a lot of his time, um, <laughs> maybe too much time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that whatever happens, these, it's always going to be close, right? But I keep your eye on Wisconsin. That's where the DNC convention is supposed to be. You know, it's going to have a different form uh, than the normal convention. As we close here, uh, our campaign episode, it's a crazy time in this country, uh, a country that is looking for healing. And it, there's a lot of similarities to you know, what happened in 2016. And we, we're going to play you a clip from uh, President Obama. He's speaking at the funeral for those Dallas officers who were shot, ambushed, really, at an otherwise peaceful Black Lives Matter rally in Dallas. And lest we forget, even during the term of our first African-American president, we had a lot of racial strife whether it was Ferguson, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, riots in Baltimore, Freddie Gray, uh, the killing of Philando Castile in Minneapolis, and now George Floyd. Uh, but we ask you to listen to the words of our 44th president and really think about uh, the change that we can make in this country. We know that the overwhelming majority of police officers do an incredibly hard and dangerous job fairly and professionally. They are deserving of our respect and not our scorn. We also know that centuries of racial discrimination, of slavery and subjugation, and Jim Crow. They didn't simply vanish with the end of lawful segregation. They didn't just stop when Dr. King made a speech or the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were signed. Race relations have improved dramatically in my lifetime. Those who deny it are dishonoring the struggles that helped us achieve that progress. But we know but, but America, we know that bias remains. We know it. Whether you are black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or of Middle Eastern descent, we have all seen this bigotry in our own lives at some point. We've heard it at times in our own homes. If we're honest, perhaps we've heard prejudice in our own heads and felt it in our own hearts. We know that. None of us is entirely innocent. No institution is entirely immune. And that includes our police departments. We know this. Can we see in each other a common humanity and a shared dignity and recognize how our different experiences have shaped us? And it doesn't make anybody perfectly good or perfectly bad. It just makes us human. I don't know. I confess that sometimes I, too, experience doubt. With an open heart, 
We can abandon the overheated rhetoric and the oversimplification that reduces whole categories of our fellow Americans, not just to opponents, but to enemies. book recommendation is Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President by Kyle Kondik uh, from 2016. Really one of the, the main books that we're using uh, in this season. Talks about you know why Ohio picks the president and also really pours into the numbers and the history. Uh, great book and there's a link in the show notes to buy that. Again, Bellwether. If you're looking for a book about the 2008 election, I would suggest Game Change by John Hellman and Mark Halperin. Uh, game change, Obama and the Clintons, McCain and Palin, and the race of a lifetime. Really insider story about that election. Uh, really enjoyable, fast-paced book. Uh, again, game change would be what I would suggest if you want to learn more about 2008. Again, thank you to our guest today, Mike O'Neill uh, from the Obama White House. Uh, a good friend of mine, awesome job. Uh, so funny. Thanks for reminding me of that meatloaf clip. We got to play the Howard Dean clip. So I appreciate it, man, and, and look to catch up with you again soon mike albritt and good friend uh to come in and talk about joe the plumber and sarah palin uh also our friend kyle condict from the university of virginia center for politics he's showing up all over this season uh go buy his book the bellwether why ohio picks the president we talked with jim robinall uh i think it's his third appearance on the show we got to get him like a a jacket or something um, but again, we really appreciate him joining us from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, we'll have him back on. He is an expert on President Warren Harding. He's the author of The Harding Affair, uh, a really, really good book from 2009. Again, The Harding Affair by Jim Robinault. Go check that out. And, and lastly, our guest was Chris Matheny, site manager, historic site manager from the Ohio State House. Uh, and Chris was so gracious to talk to us. Uh, we talked more about some state house history, too that weren't able to put in this show, but look to use maybe uh, in the future. Um, but Chris tells us, you know, you got to go visit the Ohio State House. Uh, they are uh, closed, you know, for the coronavirus crisis. Um, but when they do reopen, their museum is amazing. They have the original Ohio Constitution on loan from, from us here at the Ohio History Connection. Uh, and just a really cool museum that they updated recently. Uh, not to mention just walking around that, that uh, uh, the People's House, as it's called. Opened in 1857 uh, with Salmon P. Chase as the governor. But we talked to Chris to, to tell us about what visitors can expect when things open back up. Under normal conditions, certainly visit the Ohio State House, and we have uh, tours on the hour basically starting at 9 and 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, and the last one leaves at 3. Um, you can also, of course, visit us at um, www.ohiostatehouse.org, where um, you can see some of our different educational features we have, and certainly look at the Ohio State House Museum Education Center on Facebook. That'll do it, guys. Thank you again. I know it's another long episode. Uh, we'll be back with episode five to talk about the 1840 campaign, the first president from Ohio, the first modern presidential campaign. Uh, so much cool history happens here in the state of Ohio in that election uh, between Martin Van Buren and William Henry Harrison. And you think it wouldn't matter today? That election is still examples and precedent from that uh, election now 100, 
and 80 years ago this year. Uh, it's still relevant today and really good times. We'll talk with Ron Schaefer and Jerry Landry next episode. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the listenership is just through the roof. We couldn't be happier about that. Uh, but please still share the show, rate and review us. Uh, share this episode on, on your Facebook, on your Instagram, on your Twitter at Ohio V the World. Our Instagram is Ohio V the World Podcast. Um, and again, like us on Facebook. There's so much discussion and a lot of content on there as well. So thanks guys so much, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.